Please turn to 1 John 3, 7 through 10. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know that we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas season. And actually, technically, it's not the Christmas season. According to the church calendar, the Christmas season begins on Christmas Day. We have entered into the Advent season. So I'd say happy Advent to you. Um, If you don't know what the word Advent means, it means uh, arrival or coming. And of course, refers to the arrival, the coming of our Lord and Savior 2,000 years ago, and so Advent is the season where we wait uh, with anticipation for the coming, the arrival of this child. And what I want to do, we have three weeks before um, Christmas, three Sunday mornings, and what I want to do this, this Advent season, I'm going to put a lovely uh, nativity scene up here, I, I want to focus our time no, not so much on his coming and the, and, the, and the nature of that moment and what was going on there, I want to ask the question this month, why did he come? Like, what, what were the reasons that this child was born 2,000 years ago? And what does that have to do with us today? And none of you will remember this, but about five years ago, um, I did a series on this. Uh, why, and I gave three reasons why Jesus came, and I found three passages in the Gospels where Jesus, in his own words, says very explicitly, this is why the Son of Man came to do this. And so we spent three weeks looking at, in Jesus' own words, why he came. None of you remember that, so I could repeat that series uh, and get away with it. But I'm not going to do that. Um, This time, we're going to look at... uh, People outside of Jesus' words, look in the apostles, uh, the, you know, the early followers of Jesus and what they said. So we're going to look at three passages uh, where someone else in the Bible says, this is the reason that Jesus came. And each week we'll focus on one reason. So this morning, that's kind of nice because it could tie into our First John series that we are in all fall. So we're going to start with this one in First John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why he came. Uh, Next week, we'll look at this in Galatians. God sent his son, why? To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as God's children. And then finally, this will be our Christmas Sunday. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Three reasons why he came. We'll spend the month focusing on these reasons. So today, we're going to look at 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm actually not going to talk through this passage. We already did that a month ago. So I want to just look at this, this statement right here and just explore together what this might mean. Um, what it might mean for this child, this precious, innocent child to have come to destroy something. And I just want to acknowledge um, that doesn't have like the hallmark ring to it, right? Like 
Um, you know, this child came to destroy, you know, Merry Christmas. That's the reason for the season. You know, that doesn't like, that, that feels kind of funny. We, you know, like that doesn't sound like good news. Um, but it's really good news that this child, innocent, pure, and holy, came to destroy something. And it's really good news that he came to destroy something because we have to know that there's bad news about this world. And in 1 John, the bad news is that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, of, of the devil, as he puts it here, of, of Satan. And so the good news of the Advent season is that this child comes to the world and he comes into enemy-occupied territory and he comes as a warrior king to do battle with the enemy of God's people and to destroy the works of, of the enemy of God's people. And so I want to talk about that today. What does it mean to appreciate the destroying work this child came to do and how do we live inside of that? And before I kind of get into details, I, I, just want to, I just want to think about, just think about his life and ministry through this lens of there's this spiritual battle and Jesus has come to fight a battle and to win a victory for God's people. I mean, on the surface, you have this guy who was born. He's raised in Nazareth. He's just an ordinary Jewish kid in the first century, you know, Mediterranean world. And he's got this itinerant teaching ministry. And that's what you see on the surface. But if you read the Gospels, you can't help but see that underneath that, there is this spiritual battle taking place in the life and ministry of this little child. So even his birth, you guys know the story in Matthew, he's born and King Herod is so threatened that he wants to murder this child. In fact, he murders all boys in Bethlehem two years and younger. It's this almost satanic act of violence. And yet this child escapes to Egypt. He grows up into be a man and he starts this public ministry and his ministry starts with 40 days in the wilderness where there is a showdown between him and the devil, right? And he's tested and tempted and tried by the devil, but he emerges from the desert victorious over them temp those temptations, and he begins this public ministry. And in his public ministry, you see these demons popping up all over the place, demon-possessed people. who have, These people have been disintegrated and oppressed and, and you know, just caged by these spiritual forces. And he is bringing integration and healing and freedom into people's lives. He's, he's binding the strong man and he's plundering the strong man's possessions. And he's freeing people from the work of the devil. Um, you see the devil active even in the religious leaders of the day as they get in tension with Jesus. And these apparently, you know, good, religious, respectable guys who in fact are full of pride and greed and anger. And you see this battle between Jesus and, and the religious leaders. You see the devil even working in Jesus' own followers. You've got this, this spiritual battle. And if you read the story, like any good story, it reads and the tension just builds over his ministry. Have you ever noticed that? You just feel this underlying tension build, especially as Jesus moves from Galilee in the north down towards Jerusalem. You have this sense that something, a showdown is going to take place in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. In Jerusalem, the devil plays his, his trump card. And one of the gospels says that he puts it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And he actually enters the heart of Judas Iscariot. And one of Jesus' own followers betrays him. He gets arrested by the authorities. All of his followers scatter. His best friend denies him three times, right? 
He is tried unjustly. He is accused unjustly. He is convicted unjustly. And he is executed unjustly on a cross. And it is the moment of apparently the devil's great victory. It is the moment of darkness. And literally for three hours, there's darkness over the land. And you think Satan has won this battle. And this child dies. And then, of course, on Sunday morning, at the dawn of a new day, he comes bursting forth from a tomb, having conquered death with resurrection life within him to offer to human beings. And looking back, you realize that the cross, this moment of apparent defeat, was actually his great moment of victory. And what Satan thought was his great victory was actually his great defeat. And he comes bursting forth from the tomb, and he sends his followers out into the world with what he calls good news, what Christina called good tidings. And this is the good news. He says, now all authority has been given to me. I want you to go and preach that. Go out and preach that Satan has been stripped of his power, that Satan has lost his great weapons, that Satan no longer has authority over you, that I have authority, and that is good news. That's the gospel. And we hear that word gospel, that feels like a very religious word. In the first century, gospel was not a religious word at all. It was a political word. word. It was when, when a king would go out to battle and he'd win a big victory, he and his army would come back into the city and his heralds would go before him preaching the gospel. Good tidings. We won. <laughs> victory. That's what gospel meant in the first century. And that's what the gospel means today. A victory has been won. This child came to destroy the works of the great enemy. He has destroyed the works of the great enemy. And so what I want to do um, this morning is ask the question, are we living in the victory that he won? And maybe more specifically, what would it look like for each one of us this Advent season? What would it look like to maybe live, to be grounded a little bit more in the victory that Jesus won for us, in the works of Satan that he destroyed for us and on our behalf. So that's what we're going to do for the next 20 minutes. And I want to try to make this a little more tangible. And um, I want to go after um, two specific works that Satan works in this world that Jesus came to destroy. And there's more than these. I've chosen these. I think they're relevant, but we could probably come up with 10 or 12. Um, But here's the two works of Satan that I want to focus on this morning, that Jesus came to destroy on our behalf. Um, The first is the work of shame and guilt in people's lives. It is a work of Satan. Jesus came to destroy it. The other is a work of fear and anxiety in people's lives. And it is a work of Satan, and Jesus came to destroy it. And I would imagine some of you in this room know somebody who struggles with shame and guilt, or fear and anxiety. I know a couple people. Maybe you don't. No? Okay. Um, But I want to talk about what does it mean? What has Jesus done that changes shame and guilt in the lives of Jesus' followers, that that changes fear and anxiety? So let's look at these. I want to look at these two works of the devil today and then talk about how Jesus destroys those works. Okay, you with me? Yes? All right. Good. So the first one, let's look at this work of shame and guilt uh, that that the devil works in this world. Um, The word devil, in case you're wondering, comes from the Greek word diabolos. And that word literally means to throw across 
and then metaphorically comes to mean to slander or to accuse. So the devil is the accuser, and his work is to bring voices of accusations, of accusations into God's people, their hearts and their minds. So I want to think about this today and try to, I think you'll be able to get inside of this for your own life. Um, I want you to think about the creation story for a minute. Okay, the creation story of Genesis 1 through 2 uh, is this beautiful picture of God creating this beautiful place and these image bearers, right, who he, he created to partner with him in this world. And that creation story in Genesis 1 through 2 ends with this statement. This is Adam and Eve. The man and woman were both naked and they felt no shame. That is the very final verse of the creation story. And that was, the, that was what God intended for humanity, to have this experience of nakedness and unashamedness. Meaning, in my naked self, me, just me, without any accoutrements, any added achievements, or I mean, it could be physical, literal, but just who I am, that, that I would experience myself as who I am and be utterly without shame. That an experience of myself would be utterly free, devoid of guilt and shame. I would walk through this world entirely as I am, and that would be a free and, and, and shameless experience for me, for you. Genesis 3, enter the accuser, right? The serpent, the devil. And what he does is he weaves these lies and manipulative scripts into the man and woman, gets them to distrust God, gets them to to go against God's commandments, and, and the end result of all of that is this experience for the man and woman. This is Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This, the accuser enters, and now what the experience is, a recognition of our nakedness, and we experience that as a very shameful experience, right? My, now my, because of sin entering the world, now my naked self, just me and who I am, my naked self is somehow inadequate, is somehow deficient, is somehow broken, is shameful, and it must be covered. It must be hidden. It must be fixed in some way. And that is the work of the accuser, to take God's image bearers, meant to go out and partner in freedom with him in the world and turn them into a group of people who are full of guilt and shame and are constantly trying to cover and hide and fix themselves before God and before one another and even before themselves. That is the work of the accuser. Uh, And the more I spend time with people in this room hearing their stories, hearing your stories, Considering my own story, the more I realize how much guilt and shame are a part of people's stories, and and a much deeper and central part of people's stories than I would have thought, just, you know, on the surface. But I want you to think for a second about the accuser and the voices of accusation that you experience in your own life and story. And, And for each one of us, those voices take on a very, you know, particular, unique set of messages. So I'm going to just throw out some messages that, that might be in some of us. For some of us, the messages in my naked self, right? Me, in and of myself, there's something unlovable. I am unlovable. Or it might be 
Um, I am broken. I am damaged. Uh, it might be, I'm not enough. I'm, I, in, my, in and of myself, I'm not enough. I'm deficient. I'm insufficient. Or I'm a screw-up. Or I am a disappointment. And with those voices about who we are, there's also these voices about what God's posture towards us is now. And those voices go things, things like this. God is, you know what, God is just, he's just disappointed in me. I mean, he's just, like, that's his posture. He's disappointed. Or he's, he's frustrated. He's just frustrated with me. Um, he's critical of me. He is not 100% for me. Or the one I always say, uh, maybe he loves me because he has to love me, but he doesn't particularly like me. You know, like, um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't enjoy me. I get it. He's a good God. He has to love me. He doesn't enjoy me. And these voices are really hard to see in one another, right? Because we don't see the voices. What we see is all the covering and the hiding and the fixing. That's all that we see in one another. And we cover in all sorts of ways, right? We, We cover and we fix through achievement, through success, through wealth through physical beauty, through physical fitness, um, through all sorts of ways, through moral performance, trying to be so good. We cover, we hide, we numb. We numb in food, we numb in drink, we numb in drugs, we numb in sex, we numb in Netflix, we numb in in distract and busyness, right? So what we actually see is just all the covering and hiding and, and fixing going. We don't actually see the voices. But underneath all of that, there's these voices that are almost subconscious, that, are, that drive so much thinking, gosh, mainly, maybe if I can just do this, or if I can just fix this, or if I can just hide this, maybe the voices will, will finally go away. Um, and the voices don't go away. You might just be able to push them a little bit deeper, but they don't go away. Um, I was reminded, I, I've, I've uh, given you this quote um, from Madonna before, and it's a fantastic, it's a, it's a, it's a very poignant quote about her own journey of shame and trying to fix and and make up for that. And I think she honestly captures what so many of us feel. This is what she says. Uh, All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Quite an honest, um, vulnerable thing to say, and so, so true. Um, And that's those places of shame and brokenness, and then all the fixing and covering, that's exactly where the accuser wants us to live our lives. He wants us to live out of that place of underlying guilt and shame, and then he wants us to cover and hide and fix to try to make up for that. That's where he wants us. In the gospel of good tidings, of comfort and joy is this, that a child came, and he came to destroy that work of the accuser. And he will destroy that work of the accuser in your life. It may take your entire life. It may take till the next life, but he will destroy it. I want to talk about that in a second. But I want to turn now and look at the second work of the devil. Um, Not just the work of guilt and shame, 
but the work of fear and anxiety. Again, I know a couple people who struggle with fear and anxiety in this room. Um, so I want to just think about this. Guilt and shame is, is focused on, on who we are, right? What we've done normally. Uh, fear and anxiety, and I want you to think about the fears that you struggle with, are more focused on the circumstances of life. Um, what's going on, particularly focused on the future, it's especially focused on outcomes, outcomes that we're afraid of, or that we're hoping don't happen. And so we're living in fear, we're living in anxiety because we're anticipating some circumstance, event, outcome that we don't want. And so we're anxious about it. We want to control it. And that's another side of Satan's work is to, to mess with the circumstances, to mess with the outcomes of our lives, just to try to bring suffering, pain, and disappointment in the circumstances of our lives, to take a broken world and try to use that to ruin our lives. And I was thinking this week, you know, Satan has kind of two sides. On one side, there, he has this very crafty and subtle and manipulative side, right, where he can weave these subtle messages into our hearts. That's one side of him. But there's another side of him. And the other side is this. He's just a playground bully. That's who Satan is. Like, he just wants to push people around. He, wants to, he, he, he just wants to bully people. He wants to, he wants to mess with their circumstances and wreak havoc in their lives. And I was, I was thinking of stories where you see the devil at, at work explicitly in the Bible, and sometimes he's just a bully. I was thinking of the story of Job, for instance, um, which some scholars argue is the oldest literature in the Bible. So this may be the first thing in the Bible that's actually written about Satan, even though it doesn't come at the beginning of the book. Um, and you guys know the story of Job, this guy who has Great circumstances. He's got a wonderful family. He has wealth. He has good friends. He's got a good job. The circumstances of, our, of his life are great. And the devil, Satan, comes in. And what does he do? He's just a bully. He just bullies him. He just messes with all the circumstances. He takes away his wife, his kids, his health, his wealth. He takes everything away just to ruin him, just to try to, to take his faith in God down. He's just a bully. I was thinking of the story of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. This man who was doing such great work for the Lord, spreading this good news of good tidings of what what Jesus has done. And Satan comes into his his life in a particular way through his circumstance and wants to bully him. In in 2 Corinthians 12, there's this description um, that Paul gives of this thorn in the flesh. We've all heard about this famous thorn in the flesh that Paul had. No one knows what it was. I assume it was some sort of health or physical um, ailment or crisis in his life. But here's how he describes it. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Why? To torment me. And so you have Satan bringing this circumstance into his life just to bully him, just to torment him, just to mess with him, to try to screw up his life. And of course, Satan's purpose in that is always to, to try to create fear to try to create anxiety in us, and especially to destroy trust in God. He wants to take circumstances and do things in them so that we no longer trust God. We look at this go, where is God? I can't trust him. We stop trusting him, and then we take matters into our own hands. We start trying to fix and control circumstances on our own because we don't think we can trust God. That's always his purpose in the bullying, is to get us apart from our Father. 
And again, I, I would say, man, just as with guilt and, and shame, the more I, I hear stories of people's lives and what people wrestle with internally, there is so much fear and anxiety that people are wrestling with these days. I know that some of you experience that. I, I wrestle with anxiety a lot. Uh, and I know a lot of you wrestle with anxiety. I mean, in our nation, this is an epidemic of anxiety. I heard some stat this week, like one in five adults is like diagnosable with an anxiety disorder these days. I mean, millions and millions. Um, anxiety is such a, a real thing in people's lives today. And just as with guilt and shame, you know, that anxiety takes such unique in particular forms in each one of us, depending on our personalities and our stories and our relationships, right? For some of us, anxiety and fear is all centered around issues of health and safety, right? Some of you, you are so anxious, you know, about the kids getting in an accident or about um, getting on a flight and something happening or, or contracting something from the germs that you've just been exposed to. And, and there's such fear and anxiety around health and safety. For others of us, um, fear and anxiety is surrounding issues of performance. We so badly want to perform in this world, we really want to avoid failure at all costs. And so we step into our work each day with all this performance anxiety. We step up onto a stage every Sunday with all this performance anxiety, not wanting to fail in front of a lot of people, right? For others of us, fear and anxiety are connected with relational issues. We fear conflict everywhere we go. We want to avoid it like the plague. Right? We, we fear people's disapproval. We fear uh, relational abandonment. We fear loneliness. Uh, for some of us, the fear and anxiety is around issues of provision. We're always wondering, will there be enough? What about tomorrow and the next day? Will, will there be enough in the account? Will, there be, will the check come in when I need it to? Will, will God provide when I need it? And for some of us, it's not personal. It's these big global things. We just read the news and we watch the news every night and we just go to bed filled with anxiety about where our nation, where the world is going, right? Just massive, just generalized anxiety. Um, I think the Christmas season, uh, Christine alluded to it, is a particularly anxious season of time for many people. Expectations are higher. Um, you're getting together with old family members. Those two things alone can cause a lot of anxiety. And my father's in this room. He's a retired dentist. And I was, asked, I was confirming this with him this, this week. Um, he said that he always got more business in December, uh, partly because insurance, you know, maybe changes in the new year, but partly because crowns were breaking more often, jaws were hurting, necks were hurting. The reason is because people are grinding more in December than other <laughs> months of the year. I thought, what a poignant detail. It's so true. There is more grinding going on in the holiday season for all the obvious reasons. And that's exactly where the devil wants the people of God. Grinding, anxious, fearful of particular outcomes, and then seeking desperately to control or avoid in order to make it through whatever the outcome may be. Does the work the works of the evil one. What an encouraging Christmas message. <laughs> All right. So the good news, the gospel, let's make the turn here. This child came to destroy the works of the devil, the works of shame and guilt, the works of fear and anxiety. And the better news is he will destroy them, as I said. It may take time in your life. It may take your whole life, but he will. 
That's what he came to do. His weapon against the enemy is a cross. His weapon is the offering of his own life. Let me show you this image. I don't know if you can see this from where you are. Um, This is an image I I encountered in Italy when I was 20 years old in in this church. And it, it just hit me. This is Joseph and his son Jesus in the carpenter shop. I have a hard time with blonde Jesus here, so I want to confess. I don't love that. Um, I doubt he was quite that blonde. Um, But it's this beautiful picture of Joseph and his son Jesus. And you see on the left, there's this this beam of wood, um, just actual wood. And then if you follow it up into the sky, you can see it kind of moves into the shape of a cross in the sky, and you have this sort of blood-red sky in the background. And it's this, for me, this beautiful image that, that this child came to die and that the cross marked the very reason for his coming. And so there's an, there's an ominous note to it, but a truthful one. But the great news is the cross is his great weapon, which is such a weird thing. But that is his weapon against the evil one. And here's what he does. On the cross. Let's talk about the shame and the guilt. It was the devil's work. Here's what he does on the cross. He goes to the cross, and on the cross, all of our sin is laid on this child, right? Every shameful thing we've ever done, every guilt inducing thing, all of our deficiency, brokenness, transgressions, iniquity, whatever words you use, our mess, all of that is laid on this child on the cross. On the cross, he is paying the penalty for all of that. He is taking it on himself, and God's firm wrath, his disposition against sin is expressed towards Jesus on the cross. This is how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. God made him, that precious child, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of the shame, all of the guilt is laid on this perfect child and so that now through faith in him, in him, we receive all of his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection so that we might be found in him, in Jesus or to go back to the naked and unashamed so that we might be clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. And that is what we are. We are clothed in his righteousness. And that is such good news. This is how Paul says it in Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever words of accusation and shame that you hear, those are not God's words. That's not coming from God's mouth. Because there's no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. None. Not one little bit. Here's how... Um, That's not Genesis 2.25, that's Romans 5. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved favor where we now stand. That is where you stand with your God, in this place of undeserved favor. That's where Adam and Eve stood at the creation, right? They just walked around in undeserved favor. They didn't deserve it, they just were created and given Eden. Undeserved, God's blessing and favor, totally undeserved. That is where we now stand. Not because we're naked, but because we're clothed. Because we're clothed in Jesus and his righteousness. And that spells the end of of the devil's accusations. 
They, they mean nothing to God. I mean, we might struggle them, but, but we can have freedom and joy now. Will we be still convicted of sin? Of course, it's good to be convicted of sin. <laughs> That's a good thing. But that conviction doesn't turn in on itself and lead us to take this downward journey of, of self-hatred and shame and go, no, it just turns us to God. God, I did it again. I need to remember your, your mercy and forgiveness again. That's the gospel. And so I want to just ask you this morning, are you living inside of that good news? That you stand in the undeserved favor of God. And what would it look like this Advent season to root yourself a little more deeply in the undeserved favor of God because of what the Son did? And then finally, let me leave you with this one. The other work that God came to destroy, that Jesus came to destroy, the work of, of fear and anxiety. And again, his, uh, his, his weapon is a cross. Okay, now I want you to think about this. Stay with me here. How the cross helps with fear and anxiety. Um, the cross is an event, right? Fear has to do with events and circumstances and outcomes. The cross is an event. It is a circumstance. It is, it, is, it is an outcome of this child's life. And I know this is hard because we have hindsight, like 2,000 years, but before there was hindsight, would you agree that that's the worst possible outcome for a person's life? Right? That a, a cross, like execution, is at the top of the list of worst possible outcomes. Okay? I mean, it is the darkest, most evil, horrible thing that's ever happened in the world. We have to understand that. God in the flesh comes to save the world. World kills God. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. Right? And everything that we fear in the circumstances of our lives is epitomized at the cross. I mean, what do you fear? Do you fear health and safety? Well, think about that outcome. I mean, that's like the worst health and safety outcome of all time, right? Do you fear uh, performance and failure? Um, well, I'd say getting yourself executed uh, looks like a lot of failure. I mean, that's, that is not a, a way to succeed in life. Do you have relational fears and anxieties? Well, talk about being exposed to, to public shaming. I mean, that, that's as, as relationally bad as it gets. Or do you have fears around provision? Where, will there be enough? And, and the reality is this, this child prayed that a way out would be provided, and it was not provided for him. He prays, Lord, I don't want to do this. Provide another way. It was not provided. So it epitomizes all of our worst fears. It is Satan just bullying this kid, having his way, apparently. But this is the gospel. And I know in hindsight it's also obvious, is that the cross, the darkest Worst moment, worst outcome in human history that God, it's like he does this judo move thing and he takes the worst event in history and he flips it on its head and the very worst thing that's ever happened becomes the source of the very greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. That forgiveness and freedom and ultimately eternal life can be given to human beings in spite of their brokenness and messiness. Amen? Right? Not like, it's not like God's improvisation. It's not like God sees you know, Satan make a move and then, okay, I'll figure something out. It's like you read the story and realize, no, no. He kind of had this one figured out from the beginning. We're like, all along, he's at work, and Satan just finds himself the unwitting instrument in God's deeper plans.
Whatever plan Satan has, there is another plan underneath, bigger, deeper, more complex that even Satan doesn't fully understand that is taking place. And so when you can see that, we gain a whole new perspective on the circumstances of our lives, on the outcomes that we so fear. And the perspective is this. If God can redeem that, he can redeem and work in anything, literally anything you can think of. And that is the gospel, that God, in fact, is at work in all things, not in some things, but he is somehow working in all things. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans, right? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He says also in Romans, he says, I'm convinced that nothing, no circumstance, no event, no thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is at work in it all. Nothing can possibly, no outcome can separate us from his love. We don't know how he's at work sometimes. Sometimes he makes these surprising changes to the outcomes. We're spared the outcomes. Sometimes the outcomes happen, and yet he is still working and we're learning things through it. Sometimes he has larger purposes that have to do with well beyond our own lives, but they're good and right and meaningful purposes. And what that means is not that I have to like all the, all the outcomes of my life and the circumstances. It just means I don't have to be afraid of them. I don't have to fear them. Because really, there's no outcome that can take me from God's love. There's no outcome that he's not at work in. And so, I, in one sense, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. I mean, I get in practically it does. But theologically, I can live not having to control outcomes. That's a pretty, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a pretty different way to live. I can step in and say, I don't have to control outcomes today. Why? Because God is at work. God's with me. None of those outcomes can separate me from his love. I don't have to like the outcomes. They might not be good outcomes. I I may never understand them, um, but I don't have to fear them in the same way. And so what would it look like for you this Advent to live not in fear and anxiety, but in the peace? We talk about Jesus bringing peace in, in Christmas. What would it mean to live in the peace of I don't have to control outcomes? Right? I don't have to, I don't have to control Uncle Willie when he comes to Christmas you know, dinner and I, he's going to do his thing. We all have an Uncle Willie. I actually don't have an Uncle Willie, right? I mean, even think these, these deep things that are happening in my life, like, I don't have to control. Like, it's okay. It, it, it doesn't have to go a certain way because God is in it all. Doing things I'll never fully understand, but I can trust that he's good for me. So let me leave you with this image. Um, how do we then... Oh, no, it's not there. I don't have it, do I? I forgot to put it. Oh, that's powerfully painful. Um, Don't worry about the outcomes. Eat my own words. Um, All right, here's the image. I'm going to give you the image of this tree right here, okay? It's Christmas time. So uh, I want to try to help. Like, how do we actually, tangibly, how do I live in the freedom 
uh, and the peace uh, that, that Jesus brings because he's destroyed these works. Um, here's, here's a thought. I want you to imagine yourself a Christmas tree this year. Um, I, I want to use the, I've been using the image of, of a tree lately. Oh, there it is. Um, this is kind of like a Southern California Christmas right here is why I had that. Um, so I want to imagine you a tree. And the question I've a- I asked this about a month ago is, what would it look like to ground yourself, to root yourself more fully in the victory that Jesus won at the cross? How could you live inside of that? Uh, and this is us. This is our community. And I want you to imagine we are grounded in the gospel, the good tidings of a victory. There's no condemnation. All things are working for our good. And how can you live this month more grounded in that victory? And here's the image I want to, to give you. That this month, like every month, at some point the wind is going to blow. Okay? And by wind I'm talking about the devil's work. So those voices of shame and accusation at some point this month are going to blow. Or the fear and anxiety about outcomes are going to blow. And what would it look like not to say, stop the voices, you know, just go away, stop, don't be afraid, stop being afraid, just block it out. What would it look like just go, I'm going to let the wind blow. (laughs) The wind is going to blow in my life. And it will blow through. It will blow past. And it will blow again some other time. And just to let it blow but to say, that's okay, because I am rooted and grounded in victory. This tree's not going down. The wind's going to blow. I'm going I'm to watch. I can, sometimes I can even see it coming, <laughs> and then I can see it pass. But I'm rooted and grounded in Jesus. And so I can live in joy and freedom and peace, even in the midst of the winds and the changing seasons. So what would it look like for you to do that this Advent season? Let's pray. And before I pray, I'm going to invite our prayer team. Um, let's, we're going to do prayer in the living room um, now. Um, so if you guys want to go to the living room space instead of my office, since the weather has, has cooperated. Uh, let me pray for us. Well, Lord, uh, this Christmas season, uh, we remember your victory. We remember that's why you came, to destroy our enemy and his works. I pray that you'd give us the grace to live inside of your victory this season, to be rooted and grounded in it. And we know that the fear and anxiety is going to come. We know that the shame and guilt is going to come. But help us just to, every time that happens, rather than trying to control, trying to cover, trying to hide, just to ground ourselves a little more deeply in your love, your forgiveness, and your control over our lives, Lord. Give us that freedom that we truly could experience joy and peace even in the midst of challenging lives, Lord. And that we might be ambassadors of that joy and peace to others this season, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.